This episode is brought to you by Ultra Human. Ultra Human is a company that aims at creating the most powerful metabolic health and fitness ecosystem with a community of biohackers, athletes, and people who just love fitness. I've personally been using Ultra Human for two weeks now and can say that tracking my blood glucose levels has not only helped me maintain my own fitness goals, but also allowed me to be cognitively way more stable and way more focused. Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Alexander Debar, and you are tuning in to the No Money But Dreams podcast. Today, our guest is Mr. Basim Johar. Basim is the founder and the director of Cali Pokey, which he founded in 2016. As of today, Cali Pokey has nine locations across the Emirates. As a fellow comrade in FNB, I've spent timeless hours speaking with Basim about kind of the things which we have faced while running restaurants, how COVID has affected our business and how we can strategically scale our business in the most logical way possible. I first met Basim, Basim, sorry, sorry for that, I got it. I first met Basim when he called me off to ask about franchising Cali Pokey and which consultant would be the right one to go ahead with. I think from a perspective of working in the UAE and also working in the US, you can offer us and our listeners a unique way of understanding kind of where you came from, how you got here, and also some key takeaways for everybody. I hope you enjoy our discussion with Basim. So I gave a little small background about you and Cali Pokey. Is there anything else you'd like to fill into the gaps or do you think that we kind of uh, nailed everything? Oh, that was a great intro, man. Thank you. Thank you Fantastic. for having me out here. So at the age of 19, you started a real estate brokerage with around 75 staff. I believe that was in the UAE, correct? That's right. But today you're in the F&B industry. Can you kind of walk us through what happened with and why you went into the real estate business and why you've kind of pivoted into F&B? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, my grandfather is in real estate. He's a real estate developer in Damascus. Uh, my father has uh, in, been in real estate our entire life, you know, um, as a uh, developer, you know, and uh, investor in real estate. Um, so for me, the segue, you know, coming out of uh, high school in California, you know, to me, it seemed like it was just an easy path, you know, for me to um, go into something that I had been around my whole life and that I, I genuinely loved, you know, mm -hmm. um, real estate to me is something tangible. It's you can touch it, you can feel it, you can you can see it right in front of you. It's, it's really there, you know. Um, and, you know, my dad used to always say, buy real estate. You know, God's not making any more of it. And so for <laughs> me, it was just a no-brainer to, to get into real estate coming out of uh, school just because, honestly, I felt like it was it was just embedded in my roots, you know. Um, but you mentioned something about, you know, I had 75 staff. Uh, that was the case a few years into the business. Mm -hmm. When we started the business, when we started the real estate organization here in, in Dubai, it was just three of us, dude, you know. Um, and so... You know, we had to put in like really long hours, you know, and it was just a nonstop grind, you know, to get even to a space where we could have a fourth person, you know, so mm -hmm. to get to 75 was a long journey, you know, and um, so there was a lot of struggle in order to get there. Yeah, I think um, I think in any business you have to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think yeah, that's really the basis of a business is identifying a problem. And usually I feel that it's a problem that you have. So you have a problem, you try and find a solution, you realize that there is no solution, therefore you kind of set off to kind of build one on your own. Mm -hmm. I think that's yeah, actually, actually that's, the basis. I totally agree. Yeah, and, and, and so on that same note, you know, if business is about solving problems, then it should be then by default that the greater the problem you solve, the greater the reward you reap. You 100%. Know? And so at that time, you mentioned a very valid point. You know, um, I personally, I myself had a problem 
with real estate. You know, I, I went to go find a piece of real estate here, something small I could afford, you know, um, and it was just this challenging of like, who should I trust? You know, um, the facilities are just different to what I was used to being around in the, in the US. You know, um, the structure and the style of people here was just like, it was just, it was very much foreign to me coming mm -hmm. from, from California. Um, and so, yeah, ironically, I ended up working with this dude that was from the West, you know, and also he had Middle Eastern roots. And so he was this Canadian dude. Uh, I still, we still speak to this day, you know, but, you know, I guess I found comfort in dealing with somebody who was, you know, similar background to myself. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, most people will, will want to do when they're transacting. Um, and so in, in that scenario in, in our real estate business, then we, we did some really exciting stuff. You know, um, we, we really focused on making sure that our consultants knew that people weren't just buying and selling, you know, it was after services, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it was being able to explain to, um, potential buyers, you know, the, the uh, potential of the country and their investment, you know, the ROI and all these great things, but, but also, you know, where will, will their kids be going to school? You know, yeah. where is the supermarket going to be closest, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, um, you know, to where they're, they're going to be residing, you know, um, you know, uh, how just everyday kind of like concierge style approach to things where it's like, we would be answering questions for, for clients about, you know, where they, where they should be around town, you know? Um, and so I really looked at it like we had like a really tailored approach to how we, we dealt with, um, uh, our real estate. And that uh, kind of gave you time. your edge. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just backtrack a little bit. I didn't really go into depth. We know that you come from the U.S. You grew up in California. I understand ethnically you're fully Syrian or mm -hmm. My mom and dad are Syrian. Mom and dad are Syrian. I'm Syrian. You're Syrian. Grew up in the U.S. in mm -hmm. California. And then at which, so you went there till you were 19? Uh, my, my family's been in California since 1972. Okay. So we've been there for like 50 years. Wow. And so uh, all my brothers and sisters were born in Orange County, California. Mm -hmm. um, we've been there for our entire lives. We're still there today. Um, but then, you know, we've just gone out and, set, you know, gone into different parts of the world. And 100%. But you spend a lot of time in California. Just I'm there like three times a year. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Right. So you came to the UAE. You started a property company. Uh, you built it up to 75 people and there were a lot of hardships in the beginning, but that at one point, I guess you kind of found product market fit and you grew this business to around almost hundred employees. Mm -hmm. Then what happened? Yeah, the market turned on its belly. So in 2008, there was what they referred to as the great recession. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, I graduated high school. Yes, I graduated. Was it university or high school? No, I graduated high school just at then. Mm -hmm. And I remember that I wanted to become a lawyer. Um, and I just had to defer all my university like applications because they were just not taking any more lawyers mm. into university because nobody knew what was going on. So I think it was a hard time for everybody. Yeah. I mean, the shit hit the fan, you know, yeah. so, <laughs> for lack of a better yeah, phrase. The shit hit the fan and, uh, you know, the market shifted, um, and we were really exposed at that time, you know, because we had, um, I think we had, I think we had five or seven locations around town at that time. <clears throat> Um, and we had upwards of 75 staff. Like I said, we had this fleet of luxury vehicles, you know, part of our concierge service was like having this like A to Z approach of how we dealt with clientele mm -hmm. and, and then, white like, glove high yeah, touch. Exactly. Like, and that we'd pick you up from an airport, you know, um, with one of our luxury cars. 
Um, we'd ship you around town so you can kind of get an understanding of the city. Depending on the kind of investment you'd make, we'd put you in a helicopter. We'd get mm -hmm. you above and we'd be explaining the future of Dubai, you know. Wow, so we were really amazing. exposed, you know. Um, and then we had all these, we had advertising across bridges, Mall of the Emirates. You know, we had the slogan, it was, um, you only live once, let us show you where. Oh, wow. I like that. That's yeah, super catchy, man. Yeah, wow. So, um, <coughs> you know, it was, it was just the fact that I think the recession hit so fast and so hard. And you weren't necessarily prepared for no, it. No, we were just not expecting that. You know, I was yeah. just not expecting that. It was the last thing I'm, the last thing I would, I thought was, would, would happen in that, in that time, in that era. But, um, and how, how has that defined how you look at risk now in different businesses, you know, because when you're young, you take a lot of risks mm -hmm. and you, and so you should do. Mm -hmm. But as you start to get older, even people who are in jobs, they're less and less likely to start their own business, for example. But entrepreneurs are less and less likely to take a risk, especially when you've eaten, sorry for my language, shit a couple times from macro factors, which you had no control over. How has that kind of shaped how you look at risk now in the F&B business? So first of all, you live and you learn, man. You know, um, I now know that, you know, I have to keep a pad in my account you know, to make sure that if things don't go exactly as I plan, you know, I have a backup plan you know, yeah. to be able to protect our company and protect our staff. You know, that's one. Um, the other thing is, I mean, I've, I know businessmen today that are well established to tell you like they won't do business with people who have never, ever seen any kind of failure, you know. 100%, so it's yeah. part of it's part of something that, you know, you, you take that hit on the chin, you live and you learn and should become stronger, you know, and then. Part of the reason I think the logic behind not doing business with people who have never faced any struggle before is you don't know what they'll do when there is a struggle. You don't mm -hmm. know what their knee jerk reaction will be, you know? Um, and so I know today I feel like, you know, that's kind of something that I, I've been able to live and learn with, you know, or learn, live and learn from, you know, and um, I think it's just part of the process and the evolution. It is. And you can tell the difference. Like I speak to young founders, for example, who reach out to me on social media, who have an idea or they're building a company. And I can actually now see the difference between their logic, the way they think, even when they call me up, ah, I spoke to this investor, da, da, da. I'm like, cool, let me meet them. From the moment I meet them, mm -hmm. I had a situation from the moment I met the person, I knew this person not saying they're a fraud, but they're not serious. Right, like right. what they were saying was not correct. And I knew it, but I almost didn't want to break the guy's heart. You know what I mean? And come clean. But I just said, watch out about this one. There's something something there that's off. And I feel that my judge of character, since being an entrepreneur my whole life, I also haven't worked for anybody similar to you. We've just been hitting the streets, <laughs> out in the streets. You know what I mean? From day one, you learn, even if you necessarily, I can't say that I had a really hard upbringing or something, but in business, you're forced to kind of be in the streets in one way or another. You start 100%. to learn, you understand people, you can feel Oh, you gotta people. have your ear to the streets, dude. You gotta be listening to what's happening. And you get this yeah. like gut feeling, mm -hmm. which you become so in tune with that I really do feel like I'm 35 now. Post 35, I almost have superpowers in a way, but I lack the risk appetite. Totally. Yeah, you well, know what look, I mean? the, the longer you, know, you go on in a successful business, the more often you say no. Exactly. The more often you have to say no to ideas, you know, and um, you, you kind of start to think of like the amount of weight and responsibility you have at all times. And so you're, you're weighing it out. Like when you were young and dumb, it was not a big deal for you to take this risk. What was the worst case scenario? Sure. Today you have uh, a 75, 100 staff, 100 yeah. families are eating from this thing that you've created. And so you cannot just be saying yes to everything and trying things. I, lo I love know? that point. I actually use that point with my team. I tell them how many people depend on your salary. And the average in my team is five. Mm -hmm. So I have 100 staff. That means I am responsible for 500 people. If I make a mistake 
or I can't pay salaries at the end of the month or everything falls apart. That's 500 people that's right. that is going to suffer. And that's a massive weight on your shoulders. You know what I mean? And some people don't appreciate that. So yeah, I, we've discussed it before. So when you moved, so, okay. So you didn't move after the real estate thing. You stayed in the UAE or you went no, back actually, to Canada? So, yeah. oh, sorry, back to California. No, um, when the market took a shit, I split, you know, I mm -hmm. went back to California. Okay. Uh, I went back to Orange County. What was the first thing you thought after facing what is maybe your first failure at yes, work? Was. Would yeah, that your yeah. first in, failure? In business, yeah, yeah. What was the first thing you did when you got back to California? How did you think? How did you stay positive? I think I just wanted to chill, you know? I just wanted to kind of relax take a, take for a, a minute. Timeout. Yeah, take a breather, you know? Uh, fortunately, I had made some, you know, business decisions while I was here that allowed for me to be able to take some time off and just kind of hang out. Mm -hmm. But that got old really quick. And so... Uh, about six hours from Orange County by plane is Hawaii. Um, Oof, I knew a friend. I'm dying to go to Hawaii. Man. <laughs> I knew a friend um, who was in Honolulu, and his girlfriend and my girlfriend were friends, you know, and so it just made it easier. And we were just like, hey, we're going to pop over for a vacation, you know. And that vacation turned into like I just literally picked up and stayed in Hawaii, and I, I ended up living there for about four years. Wow. And what did what happened in Hawaii that kind of led you to where you are today? I still go back. So I was in Hawaii about a month ago. Um, Hawaii to me was a great learning experience. I'm always I always feel like you got to be learning from everything everywhere. Uh, Hawaii was a great learning experience for me because it, it just changed my tempo. You know, it, mm -hmm. I went from being like in a very fast paced city like Dubai, um, you know, high rises and action all day nonstop, to really just going back to my roots and skating, surfing. You know. Um, going out and just bicycling around town, you know, and uh, just living in, in, in the, the town, you know, in the little village, you know, and um, I was in a place called Hawaii Kai. And so it, while it's in Honolulu, it's, it's a little bit out, outside on the outskirt, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really just very, very slow pace, very chill, you know, and everybody's just so, so relaxed that you cannot be like that one person who's just like the New York mindset. Uptight, like let's, where let's are we go, going? Rat go, race. Go. Yeah, yeah, no, you've got to adapt. And, and that adaptation for me was again, part of my, my growing and learning. And um, really, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. When I look at Hawaii, I haven't been there, but when I look at it, I kind of feel like they're, it's detached from the US in a way. Mm. And I feel that people there are kind of spiritual to the sea and nature. Like Dude, I you, feel You'll hear this. And I feel that you, like when you're there, like what you're explaining was that you kind of like became at one with nature, totally. you know, like surfing, using the waves, you totally. know, bicycling in the free air, free air and mm. all of that kind of stuff. Well, you'll hear people always saying aloha, you know, yes, and, exactly. and aloha for me, as I, as I started to really dive into the culture, I understood that aloha just meant love. You know, really? Yeah. And every yeah. essence. And so it's, yeah, I can when feel, they're I can saying, feel, you know, man. show aloha, you know, they're meaning like show love for the land, you know, mm. uh, show love for the local culture, you know, show love for, for the environment, you know. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's just this really beautiful thing. I think it's again, it's something that is unique to that part of the world. And um, I would recommend it for anybody who wanted to just kind of like really dig deep and, and get back to their um, their roots. And how do you feel that that four year period kind of affected you as an entrepreneur? And what was the next step after that four? Cause I hear they have something good in Hawaii. Is it start with a P called poke? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I learned about poke there and poke is a very, very just basic concept there. It's a thousand year old cuisine. Um, and it really had to do with 
the fact that like somebody's uncle was always like out catching a, a, a tuna, you know, at that time, you know, and this is, this is old school days. And so what they would do is because they didn't have refrigeration, they lack refrigeration. What they would do is they would take volcanic salt mm-hmm. and they would, they would rub it on the, the fish itself to preserve it, to right? preserve it, to mm-hmm. cure it, you know? And so that allowed it to, to last a little longer for them. Um, and that same, then, then that same scenario became, you know, you end up with this like really charcoal flavored, um, you know, really because of the volcanic flavor mm-hmm. kind yeah, of seeps exactly. into the fish. Exactly. And so you end up with this really beautiful tasting, uh, product. And so, um, I just loved it. You know, I loved every part of it. We, we did it really simple there. You know, we had, had this like little rice cooker. We would cook rice in the morning. Um, and before we would head to the beach, you know, we would take this thing already cooked rice mm-hmm. and then we'd pop into food land which is like the local little supermarkets, you know, and grab just these little little Tupperwares of fish, you know, some ice, a little tube of wasabi, some nori papers, you know, and we would just be, you know, slamming some some poke on the beach, you know. Like hand rolls and stuff like that. Making just our fresh. own. Yeah, it was just really fire. It was really bomb stuff. Interesting. So from that situation, what led you to think about, okay, let me try and open something in Dubai? Which I mean, is too much of anything, this? too much of anything, it's, it's, just, it's just redundant, you know. I mean... Uh, I still go back today because I like to take a break and go back to like that, that moment where I just not doing anything. But if I'm not doing anything for too long, Mm -hmm. you know, then I kind of, I go a little stir crazy. And I think I, there's this concept called Island fever where I was just like, dude, I I gotta like, I gotta go back to reality at some point, you know? And, um, I, I moved back to orange County, California. And I noticed that this thing that I loved, you know, that I I had learned about while I was in Hawaii, just didn't exist. There we go. A problem. Yeah, there were no poke places, you know, and this yeah. is like 2015, 2016. There were no poke places, you know, in, in Orange County, you know. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was going to work, you know. I wasn't sure if, if people were going to love it. I wasn't sure if people were going to understand what we were doing. Like we were kind of doing this like deconstructed sushi to them is like how I would I would explain yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And, Spot um, on. And um, I wasn't Bro, sure. Bro, deconstructed it. sushi, I don't understand. <laughs> like, why yeah, don't you yeah. just wrap it? Well, you got to put it in words, you know, that yeah. like, you know, people- Layman's terms. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we, I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And so in the West Coast, you know, we have a, a strong influence from um, Mexico, you know, f- you know, the Spanish influence. For sure. And they have this thing called ceviche, you know, and ceviche mm-hmm. is fish that's cured in lime. You yes. know, or, or lemon for or, the same or any reasons that they used to do it preservation, yeah. you know? So I, I thought, you know, what we can do is we can create a bar, you know, where we can have, um, kind of like a raw bar, you know, but we can have poke and we can have ceviche in one shop, you know, mm-hmm. and we can make it a QSR, you know, like a quick serve restaurant where people can pop in, get the goods, you know, and get out. And, and it doesn't on their have, way to the beach, on their to way to the beach, you know, and it doesn't have like all the fancy stuff, like no chandeliers, you yep. know, no waitresses. It's just like straight up the goods. You grab the goods, you know, mm-hmm. you, you take your check, you go to the beach, you know? And so that's how it was born, man. That's how, that's how I kind of got into that. that so your space. first location was in California. It was in Santa Ana. Santa Ana. In the hood. And how did you find that location? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Just high, it was a high traffic area. Mm-hmm. You know, it was off of 17th Street, just really busy streets, like an artery street in Orange County and um, uh, in Santa Ana, Tustin area. And um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I already kind of have background in real estate, you know, so it wasn't, you understood. It wasn't very complex to be digging into like, you but know. But you didn't have any background in F&B. I had, well, my father's had a fine dining restaurants. Okay. 
So it was, so you it grew was up different. around F&B. I grew up around. But fine dining is way different to QSR. I grew up around true. like starlights and in, in the ceiling, mm-hmm. you know, uh, black pianos, you know, really white glove service, you know, and, and like a steakhouse fine dining, you know, on the lake in Anaheim in California. And that was my okay. dad's place, you know. All right. So I grew up around and, and even in Santa Ana before my dad had another restaurant, you know, um, we had Sam, the chef, you know, and so I was always around this, you know, so I just, just similar to how you were around real estate, you're kind of also around F and B. So, so did that, was that kind of like a logical monkey see monkey do, right? Okay. It's like, and that. you see that often, you it's see monkey that a lot. See, monkey do. I mean, you know, I, I didn't really have like much of a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so I was just, I was always looking around and like, you know, I was really, I'm really fortunate and grateful to be surrounded by entrepreneurs. And so it was a no brainer for me. Like I could create something, you know, I never thought like I could, you know, I, I never, I never thought like I couldn't, you know, it was because like I said, monkey see monkey do. I, I'm looking at everyone around me and they're creating things. And so I was thinking, you know, my, in my head, like, why, why can't I be a creator? And I think that's a really important point when you grow up around, uh, you know, parents who are entrepreneurs on their own, this idea of you creating value out of nothing isn't something that you find strange or weird. Like I was never you know, forced to take a job or like you're going to have a career path or anything like that. Kind of any idea that I would have was welcomed by them. And I think that that's essential in you being able to breed those entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial juices when you're younger. So that's really There's nothing wrong with taking a job. You know, no, no, there there's nothing no, wrong. There is no Abe in working, you know, for sure. You know, and my dad used to always tell me this, you know, God bless his soul. I learned, I learned everything I know from my dad, you know, a real G, a real gentleman, you know, um, I always tell, I always tell like my nephews, you know, if you're going to take a job, go into a job trying to, trying to grow within that place to the point where you have your own thing, you know, yeah. like you go in there, you go into a job, you respect the ownership, you learn as much as you can from them, you know, um, and you treat them with the kind of respect that you explain to them that your end goal is to end up with your own scenario, you know, mm-hmm. and while you're there, you respect that place, you learn as much as you can from that place and you go out and, and you do your own thing. For me, it's, it's about creating, you know, it's about um, just building. W- would you ever go and take a job? Absolutely. Now? Absolutely, dude. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm going into an industry, this is the thing, dude. If I'm going into an industry that I know nothing about, right, you need to go in there, man, and you need to get on the ground and learn from that place, you mm-hmm. know. Don't don't go into something and just think like you could just throw money at it. No, man, you need you need to have experience in it. You know, if you don't have experience in what you're going into, then that business doesn't belong to you, man. That business belongs to the guys that you employ that do have the experience. Hundred percent. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So when you came to the UAE, what was the first thing that surprised you about being an entrepreneur in the F and B industry? And when did you start your first? Where was your first outlet in the UAE? So there's a few questions there. I mean, um, one of the first things that surprised me about entrepreneurship in the UAE is how welcoming they are, mm-hmm. right? And so how easy it is for you to set up a company, register your trade name, you know, um, and then they've got, you know, they've gotten even better at it where they've almost have the entire process online where you can, yeah. you can go through and, and, and open businesses, you know, here, which I think is super switched on, super smart, you know, especially for, for young entrepreneurs from around the world that come here, they're going to realize this is, this is very much streamlined, you know, um, as far as my first, you said my first heartache, I'm sorry. No, your first store. My first store was in business Bay. In, okay. in a building called Churchill Tower. And that was a challenging place. Um, I think that the building was kind of learning as we were growing on how to deal with the, the vast amount of deliveries that were, that were taking place. Mm-hmm. And 
so that was a bit of a challenge in the beginning, you know, kind of like, you know, having security not let our drivers through and all these different. Yeah, these, these were the early things. days. These when were the early days, in the in, and for us, you know, it was 2016, and um, yeah, it was it was a. I'm, I mean, I'm super grateful, you know, how our relationship has developed with our landlords all around town, mm-hmm. um, because you know we're on very good terms with everybody, you know, thank God. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, there's growing pains. How important is it to choose the right landlord when you start a business in the UAE? Super important, man. You're going to need a lot of support. You know, um, you're going to need a lot of support. You're, you're going to need for uh, scenarios like parking, you know, which is something that you're going to deal in any vertically dense, you know, really busy part of the world. You know, uh, so as long as as long as you're on good terms with your landlord, you'll be able to get their support for things like parking, you know, operational hours, um, you know, support for drivers that are coming through. Um, and there's just so many moving parts. You have to imagine how many delivery trucks that we get, you mm. know, from from different parts. Especially considering the majority of the stuff you're getting is fresh, so it must be constant. So all day, every day, we have deliveries, you know, and and sometimes those deliveries are in really odd hours. Um, you know, we might receive cargo, uh, we might receive a salmon shipment in the middle of the night, it goes to a <laughs> processing facility, you know, and then you know when it comes to our shops, um, you know, we need that support from the landlord. We need support from the building. I remember once we were talking and you said that you'd have to be a sick fuck <laughs> in order to want to do this day in and day out. Could you kind of elaborate that a bit more? How the industry, you know, what are the difficulties that you face on a day-to-day basis now at scale since you've gone from one store in Business Bay to now nine locations? There's just a lot of moving parts. There's so many moving parts in, in being in F&B. Yeah? And so, I mean, you're getting... You're getting you know, coconuts shipped from Thailand, you know, you're getting uh, salmon shipped from Norway, you know, we're getting ingredients from Peru, from Japan, there's so many moving parts, you know, where you almost have to be like a, you have to be a logistics expert, you have to have like a logistics know-how. And, and that goes for two parts, like you walk into F&B and you think like, oh, I'm just going to slap something together. This is this is the impression that I think mm. some people have is like yeah. anybody can can work in the restaurant business, like anybody can can cook food and sell it. And it's not that way. It's actually much more complex, you know. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're faced with you have to start to try and understand the logistics of delivery business. Mm-hmm. You have to understand the logistics of how your supply chain works. Um, and then over and above that, you know, you're, you're going to have to really get in-depth marketing skills yourself. You know, uh, you can't really rely on everyone because that's going to cost you. And the margins are so thin yeah. in the restaurant business, you know, that you really have to be switched on, you know, and, and you have to be multifaceted in, in your, your approach with how you deal things. For sure. I think the best example I can give you is like early on, if something broke, we would call maintenance company <laughs> and a maintenance company would come and then we, we would get hit with this like major bill and we'd be like, dude, there goes the profit for today. Yeah. There's just no profit in today because we've just had to fix this thing, you know? And so you've got to learn really fast, you know, yeah. how to maneuver and survive. And I think one of the interesting things that I didn't do in F&B was I didn't do my fit outs myself. And when I had come to one of your stores and you had shown me and you explained that you had done every single element of the fit out and how much it costed, I thought to myself, well, I was naive, but maybe also a bit lazy to not say, how could I reduce my costs as much as possible, you know? Dude, that's the thing, right? So uh, I, I have this, this thing in me where I like to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty and actually be on the ground. Which I think is key in F&B, and, and, I, and, and work, you know, I love yeah. working, man. You know, I love to actually just be there and, 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 having, and see the progress, you know, and see things 
uh, develop, you know, but when I take a location, I go in there and I knock out, and I mean like I, like me. My With a gr- sledgehammer. Yeah, me and, me and a couple dudes. This has been, this is how we did Business Bay. I mean, this is how we've done a lot of our shops in the beginning days, was we would go in there and we would knock out some of the stuff that was, you know, impeding in what our, our plan would be. And then we would take a roll of duct tape and I would duct tape to the ground, you know, where we expected our line to be, where mm-hmm. we expected our plumbing to be. I would duct tape it. And then I would walk around and tr- try and understand the flow of things. Mm-hmm. And then once I felt like the flow was right and we measured and everybody was going to have enough space for front of the house and back of the house and the customer areas, I would then call uh, somebody who was AutoCAD proficient and they would come in and, and make these plans for us. Mm-hmm. I would then bring a crew right? And we would get the necessary permits. We would, we'd, we'd submit to municipality, you know, we would work with all the local authorities for permission and approvals. But then when it came time to like start building, like if we needed concrete, I was going to go get the concrete, concrete. (laughs) you know, like if we needed paint, like I'm at Joton picking out paint samples, you know, and I'm like, okay, dude, you know, send, send, you know, five liters of this stuff, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm in contact with like, you know, you got to have one really good, at least one really good dude in construction with you. Do you have somebody? I have somebody that is just like such a gem, such a gem, you know, um, actually I'll mention it by name because I'm so proud of this guy. His name is Kafayat, you know? And shout out to Kafayat. Shout out to Coffee, you know, for, for helping us all throughout this way. We wouldn't be here without you, man. Um, and Coffee is just a soldier, dude. You know, I mean, um, to the point where like I have to send him home to sleep sometimes because he's just nonstop, you know. Um, Those but yeah, are really Coffee, Coffee's in there and he's measuring, you know, how much tile we need. He's calling me and he's telling me we need 145 meters of tile, you know, uh, plus minus, you know, let's add a 10% pad in case something breaks, in case, you know, whatever. Um, I show up. I'm in Dragon Mart, you know, I'm negotiating with the guy. I'm like, yo, what's the cash price? What's the card price? You know, no, we don't need transport. We have our own <laughs> truck outside like this, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and then it, we, you know, we get past the, the, the flooring, you know, we, we, we move on to paint. We, we get past the paint, you know, we, we, so step by step, we're bringing different kind of like crews in that are proficient in what they do. Mm-hmm. The difference is, and the reason I'm explaining this is because if you're going to go out and you're gonna find these like really fancy contractors. And I'm not talking about Dubai or the UAE, I'm saying anywhere in, in the general. world. In general, if you're gonna go out and you're gonna try and, and Google the, the best contractors and you're gonna hire the best guys, you're gonna end up with a beautiful product. That product's gonna cost you. you yeah. That, there's nothing there's nothing for free in this world, dude. Mm. You know, so I mean it's you're gonna pay the price, you know, and, and you're gonna have to imagine that you're paying the electrical bills for that guy. You're paying the transport. You're paying. So that guy has his own operational fees. You exactly. Know? He has his own Fixed office. Variable he has for his your own project. staff, you know, <clears throat> and so you're going to carry those costs. You know, um, I'm not saying this is for everybody, but I am saying, you know, uh, give it a shot, you know, and try and just do as much of the stuff as you can possible mm-hmm. um, with you and, and people around you and, so, you know, surround yourself with people who are really competent in this stuff. How much do you think it would cost to open a restaurant in Dubai? Oh man, that's, that's a really broad question because, you know, I, I mean, it just depends on what you're building out, you know, for I mean, you, what is your, what is your budget? If, I can, I can, I know there's different types. Yeah. So you kind of have, you have in JBR, look at we, in JBR, we built a standalone structure, which is completely different. That's a standalone structure, but I'll tell you something about that. It's expensive. Well, it costs a, a couple hundred. Yeah. It was a couple hundred grand to do something like that, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you something about that. Dollars or dirhams? I'm um, in dirhams. Mm-hmm. Not much, you know, actually, if you think about it, it is a lot, actually, here's the, the here's the thing. 
So we, here's the catch. We, we spent a couple hundred thousand on that spot. Okay. Mm -hmm. The difference between that spot and a brick and mortar, which is your traditional location, mm -hmm. is if JBR, for whatever reason, in that location, say hypothetically, it's not really panning out for mm -hmm. us. Pick up the I can just pick, I can bring a, 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 a crane mm -hmm. and lift that location up and Put take it, it to else. another spot somewhere in town. I can take that, that container that I built, I can ship that thing anywhere in the Middle East. I can I can pop up anywhere. It's a full restaurant. It has yep. its own uh, water mm -hmm. storage tanks and dis, uh, disposable. Uh, it has its own electrical. So you just plug into any grid. You know, and so you're Elon ready to Musk, go. watch out, Kali Poki's coming to <laughs> Mars, man. No, and, and it's already got all the line chillers and all the equipment necessary. So essentially, it's a standalone business. Mm -hmm. It's ready to go. You could just it's lay turnkey unit, turnkey unit. You know, anywhere you can you can put this thing down. The difference between that. And Business Bay is in Business Bay, for example, you go in, you build out Business Bay, you do this you know, really beautiful job, all this stuff, for whatever reason, it doesn't work. Let's just say hypothetically, you, you just did a lot of tenant improvements for that landlord, mm -hmm. especially if it was shell and core. If it was just brick when you came in and then you built it all out, you, you made this heavy capital investment, you cannot take any of those things with you. Yep. You're going to leave all of those things behind, you know? Um, when you move on to the next location, if 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 you have a you know if you if you have the, the opportunity to get to a second location after that, when you choose your locations, you actually say that you don't like to take them corn. I do not take anything that's shell and core. Shell and core. I, you know, you live and, and you learn. Why is that? You live and you learn. Um, and how did you learn? Where, when did you learn that? Yeah. So actually, this is this is a point that I'm happy to talk about. I picked up a location in Alberari. Okay, mm -hmm. Alberari is out a little bit further. Um, I don't like to use the, I don't like to say desert, man, but it's, you know, it's a bit more inland. It's a bit further yeah. away from the ocean. You sure. know? Um, and so in that area, there was this like really prominent community, you know, really, really fancy villas, just this really popping part of town. I loved it, you know? So I found a location out there. It was shell and core. It means that it was just brick when I, when I walked Did in. it have ACs? No. Didn't so have no ACs, it didn't electricity have had to be yeah, updated yeah. or nothing. nothing, you know, it didn't have, it didn't have a, a DB, you know, so, so you had a blank, a blank slate basically. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the, the cabling was all run to it, but mm -hmm. then you had to figure out from there you had to make your own DB and, um, you had to have, you know, your FCU, the, 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 the actual, uh, AC units, you mm -hmm. had to pipe everything, you know? And, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot of work. It's very capital intensive, you know, and then as you're building these things, it just constantly, the tab just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's because things keep popping up, you know, and it's constant thing in, in brick and mortar. Yeah, it never ends, right? In shell and core, yeah, in brick and mortar and shell and core. Never ends. And then, like I said earlier, if for whatever reason it didn't work, where it's, for example, for us, it didn't work in that location. We just didn't get the amount of footfall that we needed. You were expecting, yeah. Yeah, that we were expecting. And, um, you know, we had to leave that location. And so when we did that, we left everything behind, man. We, we had fully fitted out this place. We had the AC units and all this stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we just had to get out of there and, 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 you know, cut our losses. But that location, actually, just to touch on that, that is where Emirates Airlines housed their staff. And mm -hmm. Emirates was one of the, the greatest supporters of our brand, you know, the Emirates wow. staff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so they loved, they loved what we were doing from early on. So we had this like collab with FaceCard and early on we were doing stuff with Emirates Airlines. I thought it would be a good idea to go out to where they're at. I shouldn't have gone shell and core, you know? Um, but yeah, you live and you, you live learn. and you learn. Mm -hmm. So I understand that you have a 4.9 rating 
on Deliveroo. It's a dynamic rating, so it changes every 24 sure, hours. Sure, but the other know? day, right before we had this, it was a 4.9 rating. Yeah. yeah, one of the highest in the country. Which is incredible. How do you manage to have such a high rating and how do you deal with customer criticism on aggregators? This is, this is the thing, man. You have to be consistent, okay? Consistent in every way. If you're delivering in 20 minutes today, don't deliver in 40 minutes tomorrow. You know, if, if you're selling Norwegian salmon today, don't start selling Scottish salmon tomorrow. And this goes across the board in every essence. People are looking for consistency. You know? yeah. People are paying you up front and they're expecting for that product to be delivered. It's going to be the same quantity, the same quality, every aspect. When you're consistent, people can appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And they see that. Yep. They're, they're like, okay, this is meeting my expectations. It's exceeding my expectations every time. And that, that's where you have gold. I think the important thing to consider there is that there's different expectations. Like when you're going and eating a steak for 500 bucks, mm-hmm. there's an expectation. Sure. You're eating something for 50 bucks, there's an expectation. If you're you eating even- a shawarma sandwich for six dirhams, it's going to blow you away every time how great it is because your expectations are set of like, I just, I just invested six dirhams into this thing. 100%. And so it exceeds your expectations yeah. every time. We are selling, and ex- it's, it's a product that is, is priced for the quality that we sell. It's not a cheap product. And so we have to, we have to exceed expectation every time. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to ingredients, I feel that a lot of restaurant owners, especially now as margins become a bit tighter, more and more businesses delivery, obviously they take a percentage of the revenue, that they either try and play around with the quantity of the ingredients or the quality of the ingredients. Yeah, I, I, don't, that's like, a I don't suggest downfall. either one of those. Yeah. Here's the thing, dude. So how do you get around it? It just depends on what you're trying to accomplish, man. It really does. Because if, you're, if you've got like a mom and pop shop, right? Like, and I, and I love mom and pop shops. I go to them all the time. Like a know? one-off location. Like a one-off location, mm-hmm. you know? And if you go to that mom and pop shop, man, that guy's sole purpose of being there is cutting a profit today. Yeah. Today, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and, you know, he he's, he's completely just all in on making sure that you know, he has that profit every single day so that he can survive and, and pay. What we're doing is building a brand. You know, when you're building a brand, you have to be constantly reinvesting in your brand, mm-hmm. you know. So in saying that, we, we buy a lot. We buy like two tons of salmon a month. It's wow. a significant amount. Where does your salmon come from? We purchase it from, from Norway. Okay. Right? And so when we buy two tons of salmon, it gives us leverage. It gives us buying power. Okay. But this is a commodity. It's mm-hmm. no different than gold. Okay. This is a commodity that will fluctuate with economic climate. Price can go up. More than likely, it always goes up. Mm-hmm. Price can go down. You know, It's important that you don't have this like, knee-jerk reaction of constantly changing things you know, in front of your customers. You know? So sometimes you have to bear that cost. You, know, you, have to, you have to bite that bullet. And you do that in an effort to stay consistent with your customers. You know? So uh, you, don't, you don't start shrinking their portions because the price went up. That's, that's, a, that's a recipe for failure. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't start changing the quality because the price went up. Say the price goes up today and you're selling a Mexican Haas avocado, the best in the world. You know? Price goes up. You switch to Peruvian avocado. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not bad. Peruvian avocado is not bad. It's just not the same thing. Yeah. What will happen with customers is they'll take a bite into that. Right? They don't know the difference between a Mexican Haas avocado. It's, that's not their job. And a yeah. Peruvian avocado, that's your job. You know? They just know that the taste isn't the same. The texture is not the same, mm-hmm. you know, the aftertaste, you know, all these different things. And then you, your brain starts to give you a signal, like something's not right with this. And there you go. You've broken that consistency. Yeah. And now you're that's starting to set yourself, one. That's, you're starting to set yourself up for failure. Yeah. 
Then the second time they try it, they say, wait, no, this is definitely not the same as I usually have it. Well, you're lucky, man. You'd be lucky if, if you started changing things on people and they came back and tried you again. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're giving you the benefit of the doubt. If they do that a third time, dude, you are like super lucky. You have a great brand, you, but it's it's you're playing with fire. Mm -hmm. People will just jump ship. There's so many, you know, there's so many brands and there's so much competition. I remember one time, you know, I was asked, you know, um, who is my competitor? My competitor is anybody who makes anything to eat. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not like it's like, oh, my competitor is just this poke brand or that poke yeah, brand. Yeah, for my sure. Competitor is the problem is person. hunger. Mm -hmm. the, right. solution the solution is food. Is to, yeah. So it's not that complicated and people do overcomplicate it. Look at what McDonald's does, right? McDonald's is consistently the same exact Wherever thing, you are in the world. Everywhere in the world. And, and on that note, I just want to admire something that they've done recently. And I wanted to, to, to mention this to you the other day, but I forgot. They did this thing recently where they revamped their menu. Now, McDonald's has been in existence for, I don't know, 56, 70 years or something. I don't At know. Least, yeah, you know? Yeah. And um, they did this thing where they started to put the onions first on the grill, right? They started to sweat the onions, industry term. They sweat the onions. Mm -hmm. Then they put the beef on top, you know. Like Oklahoma burger. And then, yeah, exactly. And then they changed the, the patty. And they started using a potato bun, right? This is a brand that's like 70, 80 years, but they managed to evolve, you know. I think that is why they've been able to be consistent all Dude, the time, it's so man. Smart. They they did and this. the way they do it is just so logical and slow. And the way the marketing is, they, they did really, this thing it's unbelievable. Where they were at first they were using they were dropping four patties at once, mm -hmm. right? So they have their 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 cooktop grill. Yep. They drop four patties. Now this is science, dude. This is part of the stuff that like you have to you have to love, you know, if you're going to be in this business. If you drop four patties, you're going to decrease the temperature of the grill. Of course. Okay. Yep. If you drop three patties by proportion that temperature is going to stay a little higher than. Mm -hmm. And so what they've done is they've created a scenario where you could sear the burger better by just putting less meat on at once. Mm -hmm. This is science, man. I mean, they're diving into like the yeah, technical. Yeah. And so I love how they were able to evolve without having to like make this like huge overhaul. They just, they, they're always working on becoming just a little bit better gradually and you can see big differences over time yeah i love that concept i think a lot of entrepreneurs as well they want the change to happen really quickly but the the true like longevity and long-term business is small incremental you know advances in the business in the product that reach after five years or ten years to be like wow that guy was a genius dude every day when we first opened i would say we're here to just work on getting 1% better today. Mm. If we can learn from our mistakes, whatever they may be, it's okay as long as we're learning from them. Exactly. And not going backwards. That's it. You touched on kind of how you're growing a brand. And, and I know from our discussions that you focus more on order numbers and revenue than necessarily profitability. Like that is your key focus. As we move out of a environment of cheap money where interest rates were really low, there's a lot of VC funding and things like that. Is your philosophy there going to change or you're still looking at, okay, what's my top line? How can I serve more people? How can I increase my revenue, et cetera? As I know you're focusing on now, you're looking at franchising. That's one of your key, uh, key strategies That's right. for the next five years. But you as Cali Pokey, you as the founder, is that still relevant as it was two years ago? With the current situation, you can't change. That's 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 you can't change that. Yeah, you don't get you don't get halfway through and then you start changing shit. You know, this is that's again that's you're starting to play with the consistency of things. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you don't do that. Yeah, so you want to you want to create a brand 
you're going to have to, you're going to have to stick to your guns and you're going to have to continue down that same path. And so that means in our customer service approach, you know, if, if somebody complains, you know, for whatever reason, the delivery is too late, we have to make sure that we're still responding the same uh, way we would respond day one, which mm -hmm. is, you know, fully refund, you know, send out something complimentary, you know, retain customers, you know, mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is you want to make sure that you're always focusing on keeping everyone happy. You yep. know, with your customers happy, you're retaining customers. You, you can't afford to lose even one customer. You know, your staff, you're focusing on staff culture, company culture, because you're long vision in this, you know, the way I, the way I do this is I think top line value. Mm. Top line value GMV basically is specific to making sure that the entire ecosystem is just thriving. Yeah. Um, and the moment you let off the throttle there, you know, and you start thinking about like your bottom line and you know how much profit I'm going to make today is when you start making decisions like changing product quality and start, you know, maybe, maybe doing shortcuts with staff and maybe doing shortcuts with customers. And that's not, more, that's not our mentality, you know, have it, you it's, ever, it's, let me just say this. It was really, it was really easy to, to make that decision because our stomach was full coming into this. Yeah. Yeah. So we were already you know, successful entrepreneurs. Um, I don't, I, I can't say that you know, this might be the case for, for everybody going into like your first startup, you know, where you can afford to do these things. But we came in with a, we came in with a, with a full stomach. And so we, we had no, no desire mm. to, you know, shift and change things, you know, based off of profitability. Have you ever thought about it? Yeah, I've thought about it every Did time, ever... every time I'm in, I'm in a scenario where I'm speaking with investors. Mm. And so we have no VCs, there's no venture capital. We, we don't have any investors, you know, um, it's, it's just, uh, it's just, it's just our group, you know, it's just us, you know, and we did that because the moment you start taking institutional capital, you start taking investors from outside. Now you have to listen mm -hmm. and you have to do as, you know, the, the majority share says, you know, yeah. And you lose the flexibility. See, look, here's, you the lose thing. the magic. There's, there's this, there's, there's several iterations of the same brand that will happen in its life cycle. Okay. You come up with a brand, super cool brand. Okay, it's literally focused on being cool. Yeah, your your best quality, best service, everything about it is beautiful. Okay, you start taking institutional capital. Institutional capital is going to tell you, hey, dude, where's the ROI that you know uh, we were expecting? You know, um, you, we don't care that the product of you know the price of salmon you know went up. We, we, that's not you know we, we don't, we don't at care the about that. Free cash you know? flow at the end of the month. End they they want to know they want to know where their dividends are. Mm. You know? Once you start going into that mindset of like you're super hyper focused on paying out your investor dividends, mm. then you're forced to, into iteration number two of your brand. Iteration mm. number two comes because they say, well, you know what? Instead of you. Um, hand cutting your salmon inside the restaurant. Why don't you send it to a mass production facility? Mm -hmm. We can cut 7%. Once you do that, you're in iteration two. You're starting to play with consistency. You're playing with fire. Circle back, yeah. You're, you're, you're now at the mercy of the board of directors that you've surrounded yourself with. You mm -hmm. know? Iteration number three comes once you get like major VCs in. You know? So then it went from like small investors that you were able to kind of like, you were like, hey guys, cool it. We've got this dream and this vision for building a brand. You know, we've got to maintain our quality and consistency. You might've been okay convincing them to cool it because you, they might've believed in your vision when they started with you institutional capital, the big guys, they're going to come in and they're going to say, you shouldn't be hand making sauces. You shouldn't be hand making these, uh, you know, this, this cutting salmon in the shops, you know, um, we, I have a factory, you know, the factory can do it for X, Y, Z. There comes iteration three, what the public perceives, what they think is the chef changed. Mm -hmm. People always tell me like, Oh, it's, 
brands in Dubai, I actually believe this myself, brands in Dubai are really good like the first six months. Yeah. And then after six months, they start to change. Mm. It's because after six months, they realize the, how honeymoon, <laughs> the, the honeymoon is. is over, yeah. you know, and the honeymoon phase is over. And now you've got the people who invested with you are, are on you and saying, like, where's, where's the, my money? Where's the P word? Where's exactly. the profit? Where's, you the, know, profit? where's yeah. the profitability? Luckily for us, you know, six years into this and we're still fighting to make sure we keep the same product, the same level, you know, if not higher, right? So we're I think always, that shows, man. We're always looking at how we can make things better. And that's, you know, that's, a, you can see that in the ratings. Yeah, so I mean, we had a 4.9 rating that equates to like a 98%, thank God, that equates to like a 98% uh, positive rate. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to do that, there is no buzz it, ulaz it. You know, For it's sure. got to be exactly precise. You got to be moving like a surgeon, you know, and um, you got to just make sure you're you're 100 on top of it. Tell me about a moment where you like felt like you were almost going to give up in your entrepreneurial journey. I don't have that embedded in me, dude. You know, Fighter that's not yeah, end, that's though. not me, man. I I might have like moments. Sure, we all have moments, but so like, but was I there will. A I wake time? up in the morning, man, and I'm just like, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm ready. Fired yeah, up. I'm fired up, dude. I'm ready to hit the town. You know, and I'm ready to, and I feel best when I'm working. Mm. So days off are my hardest thing, man. You know, that's when I really have to sit and stew in my thoughts, and that's probably <laughs> want to be there, man. That's probably the most <laughs> difficult. That if you that was that's probably it, man. I mean, when was it? It was probably like one of my days off that I forced myself to take, like early on, where I was just like questioning, like, dude, what am I doing? You know, and then yeah. the sun comes up and you're you're back on, you're in the mix, you're at the, the shops. I'm I'm there every day. I like to be. I like to go there and just kind of just get a sense of the energy and, and, and you know take a look at the different ingredients and stuff like that. But um. Once I'm in that zone, I'm ready to go. I'm fired up again. I think a lot of restaurant owners, they they don't necessarily want to be involved in the actual operation. And that allows them to be completely disconnected from their what their product is they're selling. That's weird, dude. I didn't I didn't know. Like I remember somebody said they asked me, like, oh, you still go to the yeah, restaurant? You still go to the restaurants? Like, I was dude, like, blown I don't know away. anything else to do. I was blown away. I was like, what do you mean you still go? Like that's that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed your to job. go there. <laughs> you're supposed to go there and look at the problems, you know, before they become, you know, deadly to you, you know, yeah, and how do you make it better? It's like, if you're trying to build a piece of software, you need to keep using the software. Look, uh, when you're really close to something, sometimes you don't really see it as well. True. You know that. So mm. your staff are like in front of this thing all day, nonstop mm. when you're shifting around, you know, and then I'm kind of going back to Hawaii. I'm importing, you know, Hawaiian volcanic salt to Dubai. I'm learning things still in Hawaii. And then I pop back in, you know, I start to like look at the details. And I think the beauty is in the details. Like mm. you really have to be detail orientated. And um, just a small example, like if I walk up and I see the tiniest bit of moisture in mescaline salad, I'm like, yo, everybody stop, you know. Hit the <laughs> There's a problem here if you think that you you know if you think this is okay you know because you know water specifically causes that salad to to wilt to right. wilt mm -hmm. yeah and you have to be kind of like a really OCD attention True. detail and the truth is like if I'm spending X amount of money to have a salad with whatever I don't want a wilted salad no. it needs to be a perfect salad otherwise we're why foodies should... yeah we're, we're foodies, foodies but also I think the level of expectation with so much competition in the market is pretty high man people who don't meet that expectation obviously on the price bracket as well right if I pay like 15 dirhams for a salad I don't have the same expectation no, your margin for error is zero dude zero margin yeah. for error and people don't appreciate that that's why you see these guys in the kitchen they're like yes chef no chef it's because yeah. they're it's a militaristic approach it really is it's a chain of command 
It's a very much militaristic approach. When I talk about moving like a surgeon, I mean, like imagine a scalpel, like you have to move with precision. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no room to fuck around. You know, this is not one fuck of those. Fuck around, find out. Fuck no. around and find out, man. Yeah. You know, and there's no room for that. I have a really funny story. I had a friend of mine who was an influencer, a foodie influencer. So he used to come and cover restaurants and things like that. Then he wanted to open his own restaurant. He opened it. After two months, he called me. He's like, why did you not tell me this is the most difficult thing in the yeah. world? I regret ever saying anything to anybody who owned a restaurant, like all of that. And I was just like, bro, it is. It is one of the most difficult industries that you can be in. It's even more difficult now when most of your margin is eaten up by aggregators. I mean, how did COVID kind of affect your strategy at Cali Pokey? You know what I mean? I think you took advantage of it and grew in the dark dark, uh, dark sense of it. I think, especially with delivery additions, you worked really closely with them and that allowed you to scale. But how did that change your strategy on, on how to approach this business? Okay. So we were already delivery centric before COVID. Okay. So if you had ever ordered from Cali in the early days, or if you order from it tomorrow, it's, you're always going to receive a fresh water ice pack on yep. top of it. It's fresh water because in the event it starts to, to melt, or condensate, excuse me. It's, it's doesn't have, as uh, long as it doesn't condensate on the masculine salad. Right. It's, if in, the, in that event though, if it, if it starts to condensate, it, it doesn't have, um, you know, you, it doesn't have a negative detriment, you mm -hmm. know? So, so we've always had this mentality of like delivering our food around town, you know, and making it easily accessible to people in their and You know what that, so I mean, I'm, I'm an avid uh, eater of Cali Pokey now that you opened in, in Abu Dhabi mm. and it makes a difference, man. You can see that you care from doing that. Well, when you're delivery centric, it causes you to be really operationally focused. Mm. And so now your prep times, your preparation times, or you're always like in go mode, you're mm -hmm. always really fast, you know? And so, um, that results in a better customer experience. And then that results they're in greater retention. And so we were always delivery centric, you know, when, when COVID happened, you know, I, I got a phone call from San Francisco and I, I heard that they're starting to close, they're closing shops. Like, you know, they're, they're telling people to stay safe, stay home. And I knew immediately that we were going to, we were going to see that same, that same impact in Dubai where we were going to be, um, you know, all barricaded inside our homes at some point soon. So I locked the door in business bay, and I changed the dining room setup into a prep kitchen style. And so I shifted all the tables and I got rid of all the furniture that I didn't need, you know, and I, I made it so we, we utilized 100% of the space rather than having a front of the house and back of the house. Everything was just this massive kitchen, you know. And then immediately I started to develop brands from within, right? And so that is a result of, of COVID during that era. We, we opened Cali Asai. Mm -hmm. um, we, we opened California seafood house, California mm -hmm. seafood house is the same elements as Cali Pokey. It's just yep. that they're cooked. Yes. You know, so they're, they're hot bowls, you know, mm -hmm. um, we opened ceviche del Patron. So again, same ingredients, but we're using lime and citrus to cure the, the fish. And so then we, you know, we have, we have ceviche, um, and then Cali greens, Cali greens was a salad concept, hyper-focused on just only salads at a lower price point. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't have to buy tuna and salmon. So you can get a didn't 35 durham, you can get a 30 durham salad from us. The reason we did that is because of two reasons, really. One is we had this, the space, we had the space now to be able to launch several concepts because we closed the dining room. Mm. The other reason was we saw that by default, delivery was starting to scale because everybody was just stay home, stay safe. Yeah. So we were all relying on deliveries. What we did was 
we created a scenario where we own more real estate online. Mm. What I mean by that is if you're on Deliveroo and you're scanning through and you pass by Cali Pokey once, you know, um, I've lost you, right? But if you if you keep scanning and then uh, you see Ceviche Del Patron, CDP, or you see uh, Cali Greens or whatever the case is, you know, we've got five five brands, maybe I have a better chance, you know, of- Better hit rate. Better hit rate, you know, um, um, better, better, better captive audience, you know, for, for, our, for our brands. And so, um, yeah, I think COVID accelerated delivery. So it, it worked into your favor. It worked into our favor. Um, I, instead of like, instead of hiding under a table, I decided to press on the gas mm. and I thought, you know, we should, we should build up more brands, more real estate online. And then we started going around and we started opening kitchens around town, you mm-hmm. know, so that we could be able to have like a, a better catchment, you know, delivering to more parts of the, the country. How would you measure success in your life and business beyond profits and revenue and kind of what impact do you want to have on the industry? I think, or I think measuring success, every person is going to have um, a different way of measure. For me, measuring success is whether I'm happy or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a, a huge thing for me, you know, from personally, you know, because I like to create things, you know, I, I like to be creative. Um, if I'm just like super hyper focused on just a profit, you know, and I'm not able to do the creative things, I don't know if I'll be as happy as I, as I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that I have the freedom to be able to create cool things. Um, and, and learn from, from different parts of the world and then bring them to places like Dubai. I love that. Um, if I didn't have that, I don't know if I would be as happy. So I think just, just to, to simplify it for you, I, I think of, um, success is like whether you're genuinely happy or not, because, because if you have, if you have uh, monetary success, then you might not necessarily just have that same level of happiness. Mm. It's not, it doesn't go hand in hand. They don't work exactly together. Yeah. They're nonlinear. Um, and if you're exactly, and if, and if you have just only monetary success, but you don't have that happiness, then I don't really genuinely believe that you're successful. I mean, hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. Um, I wanted to wrap this up. It's been an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, we've passed over an hour. Oh, I think. sick. I didn't realize that we've been here. Yeah, it just went really quickly. But I, I want to ask you one last question, which is, which is my closing question, is what's the luckiest thing that ever happened to you? <laughs> the luckiest thing? I don't really believe in luck. Okay, elaborate. I believe in preparation meeting opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. My mother used to say that to me all the time. So if you're prepared to take advantage of an opportunity, then you have success. And then people say, oh, you're lucky. But no, you weren't lucky, man. You were preparing and the opportunity was present. The timing was right. You took advantage of the opportunity. If, If we're talking about just like purely like a blessing, it was absolutely without a doubt uh, being born into, um, you know, the kind of positive entrepreneurial uh, family that I, I was born into, you know? And so I'm super grateful for my father's upbringing. Um, I love how he was able to go around to his, his different businesses. And I just loved as a kid seeing how people would light up and want to come shake his hand at the front door. And I realized that at a very young age, you, you didn't need to be a dictator to run a business, mm-hmm. that you could be cool mm-hmm. um, and you can take care of people. And um, in exchange, they would take care of your business. So I would say, um, growing up in the University of Muhammad Zahir Johar. God bless his soul. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you today. And thank you very much. And see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.